ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Charles Duhigg thought he was an excellent communicator. He was a journalist. He had a Pulitzer Prize. His literal job was to communicate. And then they made me a manager at the New York Times, where I was working at the time, and I discovered I had no idea what I was doing. And, and I actually was okay at, like, the logistics part of it. But, of course, the logistics part is not the hard part of management. It was the management part that I was terrible at. Mm. And it was all because I would do a bad job communicating. Like, I would fail to hear what people were really trying to tell me. I couldn't get across, you know, what was important to me. Was that something you were internally starting to realize? Or were people telling you you were a bad communicator? Like, how did that realization kind of evolved. Yeah, no, my, my colleagues did not hide it from me <laughs> that I wasn't great at the job. Oh, no. Charles was confused, but he was also curious. I really wanted to connect with these people, and I wanted us to work together as a team, and I couldn't figure out what was going wrong. So being a writer, naturally, he decided to investigate communication more deeply and write about it. He wanted to know what people who are incredibly effective at communicating do that the rest of us don't. He spoke to CIA recruiters, NASA psychologists, researchers, and more. And he calls these people, and his book, super communicators. And what's really interesting is, it's not because they were born as great communicators. They're not charismatic. They're not necessarily extroverts or introverts. It's literally just a set of skills that anyone can learn. And once we learn them, we can use them really easily. So we're going to dig into what these skills are and how they can help you talk to new people, get closer to people you already know, and have more civil conversations with people you disagree with. This is All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, the science of conversation and connection. There are some people who are really good at connection, mm -hmm. like particularly through conversation. And for most of us, though, it seems like almost like hit or miss sometimes. This is my favorite way to point out who a super communicator is. If I was to ask you, Santa, mm -hmm. if you were having a bad day yep. and you wanted to call someone who you know would make you feel better, oh, yeah. does the person you would call come immediately to mind? Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. my bestie in Toronto, Ashley. Ex exactly. <laughs> or my husband. Or exactly. My husband. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In case he listens, your husband. Too. Right. But also, but mostly Ashley. So what's interesting is that for you, Ashley is a super communicator mm. and you're probably a super communicator for her. She calls you when she when she feels down. Right. Now, there's some people, though, who can do this with anyone. It doesn't matter what they do or don't have in common or how they're divided from each other. Some people have thought a little bit more about communication and they know how to connect with almost anyone. And so what are these people who can do what Ashley does for me? You know, the people who can do that for everyone. What are they doing differently? Yeah. What? What is the secret sauce of communication here that they've clued into? So there's a couple of things that we can observe really easily, but but it's something underneath it that matters more. So the things we can observe, super communicators, they tend to ask 10 to 20 times as many questions as the average person. Oh, wow. But most of the time, yeah, I know it's a lot of questions, but <laughs> most of the time we don't even register them as questions because it's things like, oh, that's interesting, or, or tell me more about that, or, huh, what happened next, right? Mm. They're just these things to invite us into the conversation. Super communicators, they tend to laugh more than other people, but they don't laugh at jokes. They laugh to show you that they like what you're saying. They also show us that they're listening through either follow-up questions or this thing called looping for understanding. 
And underneath all of this is this basic thing, which is that super communicators are super communicators because they show people that they want to connect with them. Oftentimes, we want to connect with all kinds of people, but we don't necessarily show them that we want to connect with them. And how do they show that without coming off yeah. too clingy or whatever, that, you know, like all right, the things that right. normally enter our heads when we're trying to connect with people and we're like, well, but I don't want to seem too desperate or whatever else. Exactly. Or I don't want to, I don't want to seem inauthentic. Yeah. So there's a, there's a number of skills that can help us do this. The first is figuring out what kind of conversation is happening and then matching each other. And, and this is actually known within psychology as the matching principle mm. that in order for you and me or you or and, and anyone else to have a conversation, I have to spend a little bit of time just trying to figure out, like, what kind of frame of mind you're in. Are you in a practical frame of mind or an emotional frame of mind or a social frame of mind? And then I'm going to match you and I'm going to invite you to match me. This is one of the strategies Charles wasn't deploying at work when he was having trouble as a manager. It was also something that he and his wife were fumbling at home. I would often come home from work after a tough day. I would start complaining to my wife and telling her, you know, my my boss is a jerk and my coworkers don't don't appreciate me. And she very reasonably would offer me some practical advice. She'd say something like, why don't you take your boss out to lunch and get to know each other better? Mm -hmm. But instead of being able to hear what she was saying to me, I would get more upset. I would I would say, you know, you're supposed to have my side on this. I want you to be outraged on my behalf. And then she would get upset because I was acting so irrationally. <laughs> And so I, I went to all these experts and I asked them kind of what's going on here? Like, why am I having so much trouble communicating with with not only my my workmates, but with my wife, who I'm supposed to you know be able to communicate with? That's why we got married. And they said, we tend to think of a discussion as being about one thing, you know, our plan for our vacation or, or what to do about our taxes. But actually, every conversation is multiple kinds of conversations. And in particular, they tend to fall into one of three buckets. There's these practical conversations when we have to sort of make decisions or solve problems. But then there's also emotional conversations when I want to tell you what my problem is and I don't want you to solve it mm -hmm. for me. I want you just to listen and empathize. And there's social conversations, which is about how we relate to each other and how we relate to the world. And, and they said, look, what's happening is you're coming home and you're having an emotional conversation and your wife is having a practical conversation. Mm -hmm. And both of those are valid, but because you're not having the same kind of conversation, you can't hear each other. And that's what needs to change. The other skill Charles says really effective communicators use is called looping for understanding. See if you've heard of this one before. So there's these three steps to looping for understanding. And this is particularly important when we're talking with someone and there's a conflict. So, you know, we disagree about something or it's a hard conversation. What's important is to prove to you that I'm listening. And so what I'll do is I'll ask you a question. That's step number one. And there are certain questions that are more powerful than others. Mm -hmm. and we can talk about those. Okay. Step number two is I'll listen to what you say. And then I'm going to repeat back in my own words what I heard you just say. And step number three, and this is the step everyone always forgets, is I'm going to ask you if I got it right. This sounds very familiar from couples therapy about iMessages and the yes, like. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It turns out it works even with spouses. Right. And, and the reason why that's important is because if you believe that I want to understand you, and this is hardwired in our brain, you will want more to understand me. It's known mm. as emotional reciprocity. It's it's one of the most fundamental psychological forces among humans. You return to these principles throughout the book. And one of the things I did sort of wonder at one point with, with matching in particular is that 
if both parties happen to be super communicators and they're both trying to match each other, does that sort of just spin out of control and they cancel each other out because no one's being their authentic self and both are trying to match each other and it just doesn't work? Like, do you need a leader and follower in this kind of um, relationship? Situations like that are wonderful (laughs) because the key to matching is not necessarily to be inauthentic. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. So... Let, let's say let's say we're talking to each other again. Let's say let's say we bump into work, and I say, "How was your weekend?" And you say, "Oh, you know, I, I actually went to a funeral." Mm-hmm. Many people would just say, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry. That's re- that's really hard to hear. I, I I'm sorry about that." Right. And then they would go on to whatever they wanted to talk about, and that might be because they're not interested, or maybe they feel awkward about it. They don't want to f- seem like they're prying. They don't want to seem yeah. overly familiar. Yeah. But my dad died about six years ago, and when I came home from the funeral, I would mention to people that I had I had been to his funeral and everyone would say the same thing. They would say, my condolences. And then they would move on to something else. And I was right. desperate to talk about my dad. Like if somebody had said to me, what was your dad like? Hmm. Or, or, or what did people say at the funeral? I would have loved to have told them. Oh, yeah. And that's not inauthentic, right? That's matching me where I am. That right. that I've been through this emotional thing and I want to I want to talk about it. And if you ask me a question, it doesn't feel like you're prying. It doesn't feel awkward. It feels like you're interested in me. And as long as it's authentic, then it works. Right. So that is your out. If you're not interested or not comfortable asking, you don't have to. But if this is someone you want to connect with, really noticing what they're saying, leaning into that, and asking more can help. Now, one easy way to make those conversations easier is to ask what are known as deep questions. A deep question is something that asks a person about their values, their beliefs, or their experiences. And it's pretty easy to ask a deep question once you start looking for them. So for instance, if I bumped into you and I said, oh, what do you do for a living? And you say, oh, I'm a radio host. Then I might say, oh, did you always want to be a radio host? That's so interesting. Like, like when did you decide to become a radio host? Do, do you love your, what do you love about your job? Right. Those are easy questions to ask. And all three of them are deep questions. Because what I'm really asking you to do is talk about your experiences, what brought you to this place, you, you know, your mm-hmm. beliefs that brought you to journalism. Mm. And once you reveal that to me, it's a perfect opportunity for me to say, oh, man, you know, I'm a lawyer and I actually love my job the same way that you love being a journalist. And, and this is why. Now, I'm not actually a lawyer, right? But the point being that when we ask these deep questions, we're inviting someone to share with us. And inevitably, what they're going to say is something personal. And if we match that, then we begin to really hear each other and we begin to connect. Yeah, that's that's really helpful advice because, yeah, it's true. I think a lot of people stop at that when they're meeting new people in particular. They stop at the what do you do for work kind of thing and yeah. don't go much deeper than that, move on to something else surface level. Do these deep questions work in long-held relationships as well as a way to you know, oh, yeah. get closer to the people you already love and are close to? I do it with my kids all the time. Anyone who's a parent of a teenager knows, you're like, how was school today? Good. Did you learn anything? (laughs) No. What did you do after school? Hang out with Jasper. Right? It's like, (laughs) so what I discovered with my kids is if I just spend half a second before I ask them a question and I think of a deep question, then it opens them up. So oftentimes what I'll say is I'll say something like, hey, I was just wondering, like, 
what was the most boring part of school today? Like what, what did oh, you, what that's was the a good question? <laughs> and of course they have an answer. And then I say, why? Like, why was that more boring than like, you know, when you had to like walk to lunch and they have a reason <laughs> why. And then I say, you know, oh, you're hanging out with Jasper. Like, you know, you, <laughs> Jasper seems like a really good friend. I'm just wondering, like, what do you, what do you admire about Jasper? Like, what mm. is it about Jasper that you like? So when I ask these deep questions of my kids, it's as if I have suddenly unlocked a, a treasure chest right. and suddenly they're telling me all about, you know, I like this friend better than that friend and there's drama going on. And, <laughs> and sometimes it's like, okay, it's, that's enough. I don't need it anymore. Right, right. <laughs> but it, it's really powerful because people love being asked deep questions. In fact, there's study after study that shows when we're asked a deep question, we feel not only more trusting of the other person, we feel like we're more interesting because mm. they wanted to ask us about ourselves. Some of that work on deep questions has been done by behavioral scientist Professor Nicholas Epley from the University of Chicago. If you listen to our episode on introversion versus extroversion, you might remember we touched on this topic then. Well, he told me about this concept called deep talk versus surface talk. And so deep questions have also been study. researched extensively by husband and wife team Elaine and Arthur Aaron from Stony Brook University in New York. Starting in the 90s, they conducted a bunch of studies trying to find the kinds of questions that can foster deeper connections between strangers. And they landed on a series of 36 questions, which you might have heard referred to as the fast friends procedure. That includes questions like, what do you value most in a friendship? What is your most treasured memory? What is your most terrible memory? What's a deep question that you really appreciate when people ask you? Oh, that's a good question. Anything that starts with why. And I think those are the easiest deep questions, right? If somebody asks me like, you know, Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Did you like growing up there? Sure. Why? <laughs> why did you like growing up there? What was it like? Yeah, why? Why did you like growing up there? Oh, uh, because it, it was a, it was a big town where I sort of felt like a a big fish in a small pond, mm. and that was really satisfying as a as a teenager. Fair. Where did where did where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Toronto, Canada. Oh, okay, okay. And and did did you like growing up in Toronto? Um. Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a bit cold, but yeah. Canada's a great place otherwise. And and what like what was it about Toronto? Like what do you carry away from Toronto that like you want your own kids to have? Uh, how welcoming and multicultural it is and feels. I, I think, yeah. I, you know, I might partly be looking back at it with rose-tinted glasses because it's yeah. been a while since I've lived there. But it's just, it. Um, I never felt like an outsider there. Well, and, and think about how much you just told me about yourself. Like, you told me that you value multiculturalism, right? That that's something that, that is important to you, that you find a lot mm. of enjoyment and pleasure from. You've told me that that you have felt like an outsider in the past and that when mm -hmm. you don't feel like an outsider, it really delivers a lot of reward to you. That's really meaningful. And, and you've told me that, that because I know you're in Australia now, that you're someone who's willing to push themselves out of their comfort zone. <laughs> you liked Toronto and yet you left it for another yes. continent. <laughs> I feel like that gives us so much to learn, to, an opportunity to learn about each other and so many follow-up questions that uh, would be fascinating. And the way you just decoded that is really interesting to hear you lay it out as well, because 
I just said what I said, not fully thinking about it in that way, but you're right. right. I communicated all of that. And because you're a super <laughs> communicator now after writing this, you, you pick up on all of that. Well, and, and the truth of the matter is, if you want to pick up on it, you'll do the same thing. Anyone listening will. It's not like super communication is like some like really hard skill, like learning to drive a race car. It's more like it's more like learning to walk across the street where you only have to do it once and suddenly you you know all the rules involved. Mm. That if I ask you a deep question and if I just listen like literally half an inch more deeply, I'm going to hear you telling me things about yourself that are amazing. Okay, now I have to follow up on your comment about feeling like <laughs> a big fish in a small pond in Albuquerque. Tell me more about what you meant by that. You know, Albuquerque has about half a million people. And when I was in high school, I was the student body president. I managed to get pretty good grades without having to work too hard. And as a result, I graduated from high school thinking I was the bomb, like thinking I was just amazing. Right. And life pretty quickly taught me that's not true. It's that you were in a small pond. Uh -huh. But to just experience that, even if you're fooling yourself, that I loved that. Now, as part of his research, Charles spoke to a number of so-called super communicators. One was a CIA agent named Jim Lawler. But Jim didn't start out all that super at communicating. So Jim Lawler, he wanted to be in the CIA so bad, and he applies and he applies, and finally they accept him. And they send him to training, and then they tell him, okay, we're going to send you to Europe, and it's your job to recruit overseas assets to be spies for us. And Lawler's like, okay, I can do this. And he goes to Europe and he fails again and again and again. <laughs> As he described it, he was so awkward and so gawky. He would go to these like black tie embassy parties and like nobody wanted to talk to him. And when he tried to recruit people, <laughs> it was so clumsy that they would say things like, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to report you to the authorities because it's kind of embarrassing how bad this is. <laughs> so eventually, one of his colleagues tells him, okay, there's this woman coming into town, Fatima. She works in the ministry, the, the foreign ministry of her of her home country, which is in the Middle East, and we want you to recruit her. So, Despite his shortcomings, Lawler manages to befriend this woman, but he lies and says he's an oil speculator. And as he's getting to know her, she starts saying these things, and you'll guess which country she's from. This is the early 1980s. She says things like, you know, my country was just taken over by religious radicals and they're making all the women wear hijabs and they're not letting us study mm. things in college. And I hate it. I want to agitate against my government, but I work for the government. So one day, Lawler finally reveals he works for the CIA and he tells her. What we want are the same things you want. We want to improve the world. We want to make things better. The woman, unsurprisingly, this, doesn't respond very well. She says, I will get killed for talking to you. I'm furious that you became my friend without telling me you're CIA, because if my government finds out, they will imprison me immediately. And she runs away. So Lawler goes to his bosses. He tells them what happened. And they say, oh, wait, we already told Washington, D.C. that you recruited her. You need to close this deal or you will be fired. And so Lawler is just freaking out. He calls up Fatima. He says, will you please have one more dinner with me? And she eventually agrees. And he starts writing down ideas on how to recruit her. And he knows they're all pointless. You cannot manipulate someone into taking a suicidal risk for you. So they go to dinner mm. and Fatima is really down at the dinner. She's really glum because she's leaving in just a couple of days to go home. And she says she's kind of disappointed in herself. She thought that something would change in Europe and it hasn't. So Lawler, instead of matching her, 
Lawler tries to cheer her up. He starts telling funny stories, reminiscing about when they went sightseeing together. But what he's doing isn't working. And Lawler thinks to himself, like, should I try and recruit her one more time? And he just realizes, like, this is not going to work. Like, I just have to accept that I am going to get fired. And at that moment, he turns to her and he says, you know, look, I kind of understand what you're feeling right now because I feel the same way about being in the CIA. He, He just says the most honest thing that he can think of, which is... I'm terrible at this job. Like I, I thought I was going to be so good at it and I'm so disappointed in myself for, for not being better. And I see other people who seem to do, take to it naturally. And I just, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And, and he talks for about 10 minutes and Fatima starts crying and he feels terrible now. He's like, all I'm doing is making this woman feel bad. And he's like, I'm sorry, please stop crying. I, I didn't mean to upset you. And she says, no, 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 I can do this. And he's so inexperienced that he kind of freaks out and he, and he says the first thing that pops into his mind, which is, no, 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 you you don't have to help me. Like, I'm not trying to recruit you. I'm just, I, I realize that you're not going to do this. And she says, no, no, I can hear what you're saying before. Now I understand. I want to help you. Mm. The next day she goes into a safe house. She gets trained in covert communications. She becomes the best asset in the Middle East over the next 20 years. And Jim Lawler becomes one of the top recruiters. And the reason why I've asked him, you know, what happened there is he said, what I did is I actually, for the first time, was authentic with her. I matched her. She was feeling Mm. down. And instead of trying to cheer her up or distract her, I matched her emotional conversation. And I was honest and genuine. And then we could actually hear each other. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah. And that story is really interesting because it's also... It's such a high stakes example of where communication is so important. Well, and and I think that many of us have these really important moments throughout our lives, right? The, the The conversation that you have with your boss where you ask for a raise, that's a really important conversation. Mm. But the more that we know how to handle them, the better they're going to go. Yeah, I want to stick with high stakes conversations in sort of more the context of like difficult conversations, yeah, contentious ones where, you know, between two people who are arguing or who have very different points of view on a topic. How does matching and looping for understanding and all of this help with those kinds of really difficult conversations? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a chapter in the book about this experiment where some researchers brought together a bunch of people, and this is in the United States, where some of them were gun rights enthusiasts they they believed that anyone should be allowed to own a gun and some of them were were gun control activists and the goal of the experiment was not to get them to change each other's minds the goal was just to see if they could mm-hmm. have a civil conversation and so they taught them a couple of techniques like for instance you know looping for understanding about trying to match each other and what they found is that in those contentious conversations once you got a little bit deeper there was often things that people shared that they didn't realize that they had in common. So they would ask you know, someone, why is owning guns important to you? And they would say, well, look, I live in a rural area and, and sometimes I'm near the border and people run drugs across the border and, and taking care of my kids is really, really important to me. And so for my children's safety, like that's why mm. I own guns. And someone else might say, you know, I understand that because the reason I'm against guns is because I'm worried for my children's safety at school. We have all these school shootings. And for the first time, they realize they're they're actually motivated by the same thing. They, they have different ways of getting to that. But just knowing that this person across the, the table from me, that they, 
they care about the same thing I care about. Right. That doesn't mean we're going to change each other's mind, but that's not the point of a conversation. The goal of a conversation is not to convince someone of something. It's just to understand them and allow them to understand you. It's kind of counterintuitive, but also sort of makes sense that you have to take the goal of trying to convince someone off the table so you can just talk and understand. And that's actually the route to possibly actually change That's exactly minds. right. And it, and it's it's interesting how study after study shows this, that it, it, even if, if I'm trying to change your mind, even if I think I'm hiding it, you're going to know, right? You're going you're gonna to know why I'm yeah. asking certain questions. You're going to know that I'm not really curious. But if I just set that aside yeah. and I say like, look, like I genuinely want to understand this other person. I understand so well that I can repeat back to them what they believe and they agree that I got it right. It's hardwired into our brain that they will then listen to you more closely. That's reciprocity. And once they start listening to you, they might open their mind to your perspective. But there's one thing people tend to do, especially when they disagree with someone, that can really derail a conversation. American researchers Michael Slepian and Drew Jacoby Sengor found when you lump someone into or out of a group against their will, you've lost the conversation. So think about how frequently this happens with conversations over race, right? Particularly, it's been true here in the U.S. that when we when we say to someone, "Oh, you're black, or you're white, or you're you're native," you must feel this way about something. Our instinct is immediately to say no. It's it's not to listen. It's not. It's to say, "Look, I'm an individual. Like you can't tell me how what I believe simply based on the color of my skin or based on something you know about me. Right. I deserve the right to explain who I am." And, and the way that we get around that is that we, A, ask deep questions, and B, we recognize that people do contain all these many identities. And so I might turn to someone and say, you know, as a, as a father, as a, as a black man and as a father of teenagers in America, how do you feel about the police? Because I know you're also a lawyer, and that probably gives you a pretty mm. interesting perspective on this. And, and I know that you know cops, that you've, you've worked with them. So I'm just curious, like, how do you see the policing situation in America? That's such a more inviting way to draw someone into a conversation instead of labeling them. That's such an important and useful tip, I think, because like you've touched on race, you've touched on politics. There's so much that divides us. Uh, currently, Israel-Gaza yeah. is a really, you know, hot button topic. So for people listening who are trying to navigate these conversations, not to put you too much no. on the spot with, you know, Israel-Gaza in particular, but like, can you distill down to like, you know, a couple of pointers of what they can do to try to connect with people who are so, feel so far across Absolutely. the divide in order to have these conversations? One of the best things to do is simply ask, what does this mean to you? Why, are, why is Israel and Gaza so important to you? What does it represent for you? Because there, there's been other humanitarian crises, there's been other military action, there's yeah. been other attacks. Like, there's something about this that it seems like it means something important to you. What it, What is that? And then when they respond, and they might say something you completely disagree with. They might say, right. look, I think Israel is running an apartheid state. And And you can say back to them, what I hear you saying is that when people are separated against their will, when they're... When they're forced to live in certain places, you consider that unjust. And actually, that makes a ton of sense to me, right? I, I think that's the same thing that happened in South Africa. It's the same thing that happened with Native Americans in the United States. Same thing that happened during the Holocaust. I understand why that would be really troubling to you. Did, am I getting that right? 
And when they say, yeah, yeah, that's like part of it. I, then they'll say, why doesn't it bother you? Like, why do you think that, that it's okay for this to be happening? Or they might say, tell me like, you know, your thoughts on this. How do you see Israel differently than I see Israel? And again, we're not going to convince each other, like it, it, at least in one conversation. Yeah. But what we are going to do is we're going to understand each other a little bit better. And we're going to know that it's not as black and white as all of us are describing it. And the way that we figure out the right answer is usually with other people. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I it also sort of takes both parties to be chatting in good faith, you know, as opposed to not. That's true. That's true. And oftentimes, if you make the initiative first, other people will mirror you. They will they will feel safe enough and trusted enough that they can do the same thing back to you. Mm. So it matters how you broach that conversation. Yeah. Then. Yeah. I think sometimes, you know, one of the things that super communicators do is they they take the first step. They offer a fig leaf. They say, look, I, I don't agree with you, but I think you made some really, really good points. And like the thing that's mm. really interesting that you just said that I've learned a lot from is X. And that's an invitation, right? If if you hear someone say that, it's almost impossible for you not to say, thank you. Like, I actually think you've made some really good points too, right? It, it's, it feels yeah. rude yeah. not to. And I guess a final bit of parting advice for listeners, there's been a lot of practical tips and advice in our chat, but like, if there's one thing they can do after listening to this, the next conversation they have uh, in order to make it more authentic or meaningful or effective, what's like one takeaway that people can deploy right away? Yeah, absolutely. So in the next conversation you have, try and ask a why question. Mm. Like when you say like, hey, how was your weekend? And they say, oh, it was good. And you say, oh, yeah, why was it good? Tell me about like what happened. Try and ask a why question and then listen. Listen for what they're giving you. It's practical, emotional, social, and then lean into that. And you'll find it's a wonderful discussion. That is Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author of Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection, Charles Duhigg. Now, if you found this episode helpful, definitely take a listen to our episode on introversion versus extroversion. I mentioned earlier how we touched on the topic of deep questions in that episode. Introversion versus extroversion was also one of our most popular episodes, and it's full of ideas on how to better connect with people as well. So you can scroll back in your podcast feed and look for introversion versus extroversion, or search that plus all in the mind, and you'll get our webpage. And that is it for the show this week. Thanks to producer Rose Kerr and sound engineer Roy Huberman. This episode was written, edited, and presented by me, Sana Kadar. And thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.